in Islam. Oh, five. Yeah, five times oh, a day. Seven. No, 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 five times a day. I used to know all five prayer names because they'd be on the TV all the time, and you know, you just it was drummed into you. But I don't Maghreb. Walk to Maghrib, walk to Zohar, walk to... I, anyway, um, there are five named prayers for now the Muslims. You tell us, like Jim does, what Shin means. Shin? Shin means tooth and... Uh, um, let's see here. Anyway, I don't remember. I've got it written but down somewhere, but he keeps it in his Bible. I don't. What's that? Two front teeth. Two front teeth. That's right. That's exactly... That's what it looks like. So that's... Uh, okay, we got, we got to get going here. Um, Chicago Statement of Faith... Number, number, no, uh, 15, 16, 17. Number 17, we affirm that the Holy Spirit bears witness to the scriptures, no problem there, assuring believers of the truthfulness of God's written word. 100%, I agree with that. I don't know anybody here that would disagree. We affirm that the Holy Spirit bears witness to the scriptures, assuring believers of the truthfulness of God's written word. 100%. Okay, we deny that this witness of the Holy Spirit operates in isolation from or against Scripture. Okay, who gave us the Scriptures? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. It says men of God were carried along by the Holy Spirit, and the word they spoke through men of God, etc. And uh, so anyway, it's the Holy Spirit that gave us the Scriptures. God spoke through these people. And so he can't be contrary to himself. You know, I'll give you an example, a perfect example of this right here. I'm going to read it again so that we know where we're going with this. It says here, um, we deny that this witness of the Holy Spirit operates in isolation from or against Scripture. Okay. Every time you go into a church that speaks tongues, okay, if they are speaking tongues in that church, the, what does it say about speaking tongues in Scripture? One at, a time. one at a time no more than three if you're ever in a congregation and they have more than three people speak in tongues if it's not translated and if there's more than one at a time then it is not of god and it has to be a known language it, it the, tongues is not the stuff that you see people saying in the pulpit and rolling around on the floor and making those goofy sounds now the holy spirit gave us that instruction that is what it says in this book right here it says that, okay? And so if somebody is in a church or some people are in a church and they are speaking supposedly in tongues and it does not match what this says, then it is not of the Holy Spirit, which means that it is of Satan. It's one or the other. It's not, it, 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 if it's contrived of man and it's against God's word, then it is still of Satan. So uh, don't be fooled by people that, you know, get a word from the Lord that do all these crazy things that they say that they're doing. They're not. This is a very well-written article, and next week will be Article 18. Okay, we got that, and then I got a couple prayer requests very quickly here. Um, let's see here. We have um, Siri as a high PSA. It, uh, it, it does not mean, um, what do you call it? Um, cancer, uh, prostate cancer, but uh, it, it conflicts with something else that he has in his life, and so we want to keep him in prayer. And then Bob, who opens us on Sunday morning, had a stroke up in uh, Richmond, Virginia. This is his third stroke, and so uh, uh, I have not heard about him today. I have not had time to call his daughter and find out. I will do that when I get home. And uh, then Graham in Scotland, who is a brother that is always attending online had another stroke this week as well so bob who opens us graham and scotland uh both have need of prayer for that and then darla had her hip replaced three weeks ago and then she had her other hip replaced this past week and the second hip replacement 
was not working well, it was hurting her. And then she fell and she dislodged it. And so she's in the hospital right now. And I just found that out. I did not have time to go visit her today, but she, they said, I may not be able to visit anyway because they're going to transport her from a hospital to a care facility. So I'll get information on that. And if you want to know, call me tomorrow, send me an email, and I will get you the location. You can go visit her. But Darla, and then finally, this is not a prayer request. This is a plea. I have one last thing of mangoes here. And so some of them have soft spots. You're going to have to cut that off. But please don't make me carry those home. We still have mangoes falling, but that'll be the last of them, I'm sure. I don't think we'll have enough on Sunday or on next Thursday. So I brought in what I could today. Please take them. Don't feel guilty. Just grab them. And if somebody else puts their hand down there, slap it away, whatever. But take, take the mangoes you want. So those are our prayer requests. And we'll go to the Lord first. Then we'll do a couple other things. Heavenly Father, you've heard the uh, prayer requests uh, uh, for Darla and Bob and Siri and uh, Graham. And Lord, we also have people that are facing troubles in Oregon and California with fires. We would pray for the believers there, that they would be calm and patient in this uh, time of crisis and that they would be uh, understand that you are with them regardless of what happens, but we would pray for safety and security for them. And Lord, you certainly know uh, of the police officer that died that was uh, in a church. I got an email about that today, Lord, and they've asked for prayers for the whole church. And so we lift them up as well. And Lord, we just thank you that we can come to you, especially when we're in a time of crisis in our own life and our heart is overwhelmed and we're, we're in a time of trouble. So thank you that you are there with us and give those people and those uh, families the comfort that they need at this time in their lives and the healing that they need if it, that applies, Lord. We pray this, that you will be glorified and that they will be uh, built up in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, really quickly, I do this once a month, and usually it's something negative, isn't it? I bring in the Table Talk magazine, and I show you where you're going to get um, bad doctrine on, you know, uh, Calvinism, or you're going to get something that's wrong on replacement theology. But this week, I've got something very good. This is why I read this. You get good theology, too. And it's, you know, sometimes you hear something, and you process it differently than you may have thought in the past. So I'll read you just a paragraph halfway down to the end, and uh, real quick, it says, Yet when we speak of the feeling of guilt, because we were talking about that in our sermon on Sunday, you know, guilt feelings, and we feel, speak of the feeling of guilt, we are starting to get into subjective territory. Only personal beings can experience feelings. So our guilt feelings are a consequence of our personhood. Rocks, for instance, never feel guilt. Everybody got that? Okay, we're human beings. We have guilt feelings. That is because objective guilt is also something that is possible for only for personal beings. We incur objective guilt when we break a law given by another personal entity, such as the civil magistrate. If we break a law, we are objectively and factually guilty. There's nothing subjective about it. We may feel subjectively guilty when we are objectively guilty, but a lack of subjective guilt uh, or subjective, um, but a lack of subjective guilt feelings has no bearing on whether we are in fact lawbreakers. If I'm driving down the road and I'm speeding and I don't know what the speed limit is, it doesn't mean that I'm not guilty. I'm objectively guilty, but I may not feel guilty at the time. Okay, so um, uh, things can start to get complex because it is possible to be objectively guilty and yet feel no subjective guilt. 
And it is also possible to feel subjectively guilty. And this is where I wanted to point to when we have incurred no objective guilt. Ultimately, our feelings cannot tell us for certain if we are lawbreakers. The only sure guide is the word of God, which tells us that apart from Christ, all people are objectively guilty of sin. All people have sinned. The wages of sin is death. Okay, that's Romans 3, 9. We're all uh, guilty of sin. Okay, the point is, though, that and this is something that many Christians struggle with. And when I read this, I thought this would be a really great thing that people understand. How many of you feel bad about past sins? How many of you said, okay, almost every hand here went up. Okay, how uh, many of you still feel like you're still mourning over those past sins and you think, you know, I wonder if God has really forgiven me. If you go through that, the one thing you need to understand is that because of Jesus Christ, you are no longer guilty, okay? And people struggle with that. And it's, oh, I, I, I don't understand how God has forgiven me or I can't accept that God is forgiving me. And what that does is it sets up a personal wall between you and the Lord. The reason why is because Christ died for your sins. And if you can't accept the fact that Christ died for your sins, then you are exalting yourselves and your sins above the cross of Christ. In essence, and I hate to say it this way, but it's the way that you need to understand it, is that it is an arrogant display from you. Because to say that I just can't accept that Christ has forgiven me is to say that it was insufficient. Okay, everybody got that? So don't ever feel like you have a debt that you cannot just say, I'm done with that. If Christ has forgiven you, he is done with it, and therefore you are to be done with it. Okay, objective guilt, subjective guilt, etc. It was just an interesting way that they put that, and it got me thinking about that, is we are never to put our sin above the cross of Christ if his blood has already covered it. Yes, sir? As you were speaking, I was remembering as a child being spanked for something I'd done wrong. Right. And the sense of forgiveness or restoration that occurred as a result of that yep. is the same that we should appropriate from the sacrifice of Christ. Very well said. Very, that's very well said. I'll give you the opposite. One time I did something wrong and my brother got a spanking and I've always felt bad about that. It wasn't by you though, it was by the other parent. But <laughs> I, uh, I, I have always felt bad, even to this day, I think, you know, he took a punishment that I didn't deserve. How much more should we be thankful for what Christ did for us voluntarily? Okay, wonderful stuff. Don't carry your guilt around. Put it under the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ and be done with it. Okay, that's not to say that we're to forget what we did. I never want to forget what I did. I never want to forget the sins that I committed because I don't want to go back and do them again. But they are forgiven and I'm not to bear the guilt of them any longer lest I diminish the, the import of what Christ did on the cross. Okay, and then um, I'm not going to read this today because we're already a little bit long once again. And um, so we're going to get into Romans chapter uh, 13, verse 7 today. All right, pretty good stuff you already. something this week that you have not done in the past. You said to call you. Did you get a cell phone? Oh, that's never going to happen. That's no, that's you can call and leave a message on my answering machine. And I normally pick up once I know who it is. There's very few times that I wouldn't do that except on Mondays because Mondays I type a sermon and I, I unless I am done with that sermon, I ain't picking up. I don't care. Unless mom says, you know, I'm having a heart attack. 
I will pick it up. But other than that, I ain't picking up that phone on Monday because it's a very long, busy, complicated day. But um, uh, yeah, you can call and leave a message. And if I'm home, I'll pick up. And if not, just keep talking. But that's, you know, and I don't pick up the phone until I know who it is, too. Once, once I hear a voice, then, because you know, the phone isn't next to me, it's over there. And so, uh, and, unless I know who it is, and if I haven't picked up in 15 seconds or not even at 10 seconds, that means just, just leave the message. Oh, robots and people that, you know, just, they want to talk about polit politics, you know, the, uh, this time of year, the, the candidates. I don't have time for that. I, I don't want to, so I just let it go. And normally what I do if it's a recording is I hit start, and then I hit stop because I don't want to listen to the whole message. So uh, anyway, here we go. We're in Romans 13, verse 7. Um, Render, therefore, to all. I'm going to go back and I'm going to start a little earlier so that we remember the context. For rulers are not a terror for good works, but to evil. That's verse 3. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of you, this also, uh, because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Okay, verse 7. Render therefore to all their due. Texas to whom taxes are due, custom to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Okay, verse 7, it begins with render therefore. And then it lists what we are to surrender based on the discussion of the previous six verses. This term, render therefore, is beautifully described by Albert Barnes. He's one of my favorite scholars of old days. He's marvelous. I've got his commentary. If anybody wants it, it's in the back. I want it back after you read it. It's about this thick, New Testament only. It's about this big, and the letters are so small, you're going to need a micro, micro a magnifying glass to, uh, to read them. But he's a wonderful, wonderful guy. His comments are always very insightful. So here's what he says. Christianity is not designed to break in upon the proper order of society, but rather to establish and confirm that order. It does not rudely assail existing institutions, but it comes to put them on a proper footing, to diffuse a mild and pure influence over all, and to, cure, to secure such an influence in all the relations of life as shall tend best to promote the happiness of man and the welfare of the community. Okay, wonderful stuff, matches just beautifully what, with what it says here. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to whom customs, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. Okay, it is we who should be the model and goal of all others within society as we live out the high calling of our Christian life. I know, I, I understand that there are Christians that do not do this. They don't live out the model and the role. That's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to do that and to let the Lord judge them when they stand before him. And this high calling is to render to all their due, according to Paul. This, as described here, includes taxes to whom taxes are due. Paul told us to whom we were to pay taxes and the reason for it in verse 6. And now he reiterates it here. In essence, he is saying they are due this for the reason I explained. Now follow through with it. The word taxes in Greek is phoron. 
It indicates those taxes that are imposed on people and on estates. So we have estate taxes in America, we've got personal taxes, we've got wage taxes, we've got taxes that we have to pay in the restaurants, and we've got taxes for this, and we've got taxes for that. We've got millions and millions of taxes, and we're supposed to pay our taxes. Okay, it's just the way it is. Next, he notes, customs to whom customs are due. The Greek is telos. This is a tax which would be on things brought, bought and sold and things imported and exported. Okay, when taxes like this are imposed, we are to pay them. In the modern world, the taxes are usually already figured into the cost of an item, but there are also legal ways of getting around them, such as bartering, buying online, and so on. Now, they've kind of done away with buying online in the past couple months. They, the Supreme Court said to Amazon, they have to charge taxes in the states where they haven't been doing that. Now, it, that obviously hasn't come into effect yet. And the reason why is because they've got to get the system in place now that the court order is, is passed. But pretty soon you will buy nothing online anywhere without paying taxes to the state. That's just the way it is. It's been a free ride for what, 10 years? Free ride is over, okay? But it's just the way it is. That's what the Supreme Court said. And so that's where we're gonna have to stand with it, okay? But bartering is still a tax-free way of working things out. If you want to barter with somebody, there's no tax involved at least at this point. Eventually, though, nothing will be bought or sold, nothing, without first accepting the mark of the beast. That's going to be in Revelation 13, verses 16 and 17, if you want to go read it. At that time, there will be only one of two options. In Luke 20, 25, Jesus told us to, anybody, render, to there you go, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. If taking the mark of the beast means that we are not rendering to God his due, then a sobering choice will have to be made. Will the individual honor God and refuse the mark, thus sealing his fate in this earthly life? Or will the individual honor Caesar and take the mark, thus securing temporary life and with it eternal damnation? That's the choice of everybody that's going to be left behind. They are all going to have to face the music. Okay, if you take the mark of the beast, I know there are, there are, I would call it heresy personally. There are people out there that say that you can take the mark of the beast and then later repent and be saved. Absolutely not. It's very clear in the book of Revelation. It says that if you've taken the mark of the beast, that's it. Okay, you, you are done. Okay, and I would say that's a heresy because when you start leading into issues that involve salvation or taking away salvation from somebody because of improper teaching, that would be heretical. Okay. Um, teaching a heresy, though, does not mean that the person teaching it is not saved. A heresy does not keep the person teaching it from being saved. It keeps the next person from being saved. So you've got to be very careful with that. But yes, a heretic can actually be a saved person. He just has really bad doctrine, and he is sending people down the wrong, the wrong way. So um, that's their choice. The far better choice is to receive Jesus Christ now. By doing so, before that horrible day comes, they will be taken up at the rapture and free from facing this dilemma. Woo I can't wait for that one. I got you know, Yes, I am pre-tribulation rapture. If anybody doesn't know that, I did a video on it. Send me an email and I will uh, uh, send you the link to it. It's very clear. The Bible is specific. Okay. And I'll tell you something about pre-tribulation rapture. If I am wrong, I've lost absolutely nothing, right? We got to go through the tribulation anyway, right? But the people that say the wrong thing and then find out that the rapture has happened, how many people have said, well, I, you know, it just, it harms people that 
don't understand the urgency of what Christ means when he says, you know, I'm coming quickly, which means I'm coming quickly anyway, and he comes as a thief in the night, etc. So, um, but yes, it, it is very clear. Scripture is very clear about the timing of the rapture. It is pre-tribulation, and uh, for those that don't understand that, send me the email and I'll send you the, uh, the link to it, and you can go through it. It's very clear. Anyway, um, besides that, before I get into the next paragraph, if you didn't see this, and if you do have their email address, send Jim and Linda a happy anniversary. Today is their, I think they said their 35th, 36th, 38th, thank you, 38th, that's right, 38th. And the reason why is because as soon as he said it's our 38th, I thought of the guy that had been laying in the uh, uh, by the Temple of Siloam for 38 years. And I almost sent him kind of like a joke about it. And I thought, I'm not going to do that about their anniversary. But um, uh, th that's right, 38th. What's that? Maybe tomorrow we'll talk about that. That's right. Maybe tomorrow. Okay, Paul's next thought is that we are to render fear to whom fear is due. This is referring to what he said in verses 2 through 4. The authorities bear the sword, and therefore they are due the fear of their office. This doesn't mean they are to be afraid of them, but to show the fear which leads to obedience and proper submission. The thought is comparable to our duty to the Lord, as is noted again and again and again in Scripture, all the way through. One such verse is Leviticus 19, verse 32. You shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God. I am the Lord. The thought is not that we are to be afraid of the Lord, but that we are to fear who he is. It should be a fear in awe, not of threat, okay? Finally, Paul notes that we are to offer honor to whom honor is due. This takes us back to verse 1, which noted that we are subject to the governing authorities. These people have been placed over us, and therefore they are due the honor of the office, something I did not always provide to our previous president. I admit that openly. I was not in compliance with Paul's words of scripture. It was very hard for me to, to even say a prayer for the guy, but I did from time to time. And uh, I understand people's feelings about these things, but we are, at least in the Bible, implored, exhorted, and instructed to do that. Okay, so um, for example, regardless of who is in the White House, here's the example, and there have been some really crum crummy presidents in our history, the office itself demands the honor. But that isn't the end of who is to be honored. Peter in his first epistle will expand on this thought to include all people. All people. Okay? That's what he says. Um, we are to defer honor to all others and thus be humble in how we present ourselves. Here's the thought from 1 Peter 2 verse 17. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Life application, if Romans 13, 1 through 7 have seemed like a tough challenge to you, and I got to tell you, I got a lot of emails from people saying, I really find it hard to, I'm right there with you, completely. I wouldn't have wrote this life application if I didn't fall into that same category. So if you feel like I haven't met up, I'm right there with you, okay? You don't feel alone. Most people find these verses difficult. However, we are instructed to be the model of society and the epitome of those who are respectful of others. At the same time, we are to be as hard as a wall of iron in tolerating sin, or actually not tolerating sin. I'm going to put a not there just because somebody will say, well, you said we should tolerate sin. No, that's not my intent, and it's obvious, but sometimes people nitpick. So uh, not tolerating sin. Okay. As a matter of fact, somebody emailed me about that exact precept today as well. You know, I, she says, I'm so angry at the world today. She says, I don't understand how things have turned out the way they have. And she says, I'm angry at this. And I said, well, you're right to be. 
And she, I think, you know, no names or anything. It's just something that we all probably have felt. So I'm not betraying any private email, but, um, uh, you know, you get the thing about being judgmental, right? Oh, you're being judgmental. And my answer is not just to her, but to, I do it on Facebook all the time. Guess what? I don't need to be judgmental. All I need to do is do what God said in his word, right? If I do what it says in his word, then he's the judgmental one. I'm just abiding by what he has directed. When it says don't tolerate this, then we're not to tolerate it. So don't let people, yeah, don't let people push you around and make you feel guilty about your upholding biblical standards. That's our job is to uphold those standards. And if that's what the Bible says in context now, of course, because there are some things that are ripped out of context, but in context, we are never to feel guilty about that. We, we're, we're just not. We're to uphold the word of the Lord. Okay. And so there's a balance which needs to be presented. If we live the love and don't challenge the sin, we err in tolerating that which God will not accept. However, if we live for judgment on sin without granting respect and honor, we become and are so viewed as self-righteous. And there's a lot of Christians out there like that. Without the balance, we become ineffective in our Christian testimony. So we have to uphold God's standards without becoming, you know, self-righteous, whatever you want, term you want to use, because it's, it's just not right. All right. Verse 13, 8. Let's see here. 13, verse 8. Oh, no one, anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Although this verse is commonly used to express the concept of Christian love, this isn't actually what Paul is first and foremost speaking of. Context. The past seven verses have spoken of the Christian's duties to the state, paying taxes, paying customs, showing fear towards those who bear the sword, and rendering honor to those whom honor are due. These are considered debts to be paid. And so Paul now reiterates this. Everybody got that? If you owe taxes, you pay your taxes. Owe, owe nobody your taxes. Owe nobody paying your customs. Owe nobody showing fear towards those who bear the sword, etc. Owe no one anything implies that we pay our debts. This One of the commercials I hear, and I hear it all the time on talk radio, and it infuriates me, is it says, if you have this much credit card debt, do you know that you don't have to pay that? And then they've got this company that will tell you how to get out of your credit card debt. And that, that literally infuriates me. I don't care if the law says that you can get out of that credit card debt or not. That is something that you purchased you willingly put that card into a machine and said, I'm getting that t-shirt, I'm buying that car, whatever you did. And if you're not willing to pay your debts, you should not have charged that because somebody has to pay for it. Right. Somebody has to pay that debt. That infuriates me when I hear that. I, I feel like writing to the people that on 970 I, is where I hear it. That's who I normally listen to. I feel like saying, would you please, I don't care if you're making money off of that advertising, stop putting it on there. It's completely contrary to the values that you're saying that you uphold on this station, which is a conservative station. Yeah. It just, it's, you know, they, they got to make revenue so they, they, anybody can advertise, but I wouldn't allow that on my, my conservative station. It's absolutely crazy. It infuriates me. Um, where was I? Oh, no, anyone. We pay our debts. This cannot mean that we shouldn't acquire debt. Everybody got that? When we buy a house, do we have enough money to go and buy the house? No. So we acquire debt. Everybody got that? Probably most of us here that have a house is paying on it. 
unless you've lived in it long enough where you've paid off the 15 or 30 year mortgage. And I guess they have other mortgages now, 20 years and stuff. When I, all I know of is the 15 and the 30, but you are acquiring debt. That's not what that's talking about. Purchase of a land, a vehicle, or some other big ticket item. Even the Old Testament has provisions for buying land and the payments to be made. That's in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 13 through 17, okay? However, in such a debt, we are to be faithful in its repayment. When it says, owe no one anything, it's saying not that you are not to buy a, a, a land and owe on it. It's that you owe monthly or whatever the set term is, you are not to owe beyond that. You pay what you are to pay. If you can't handle that, then you need to get yourself out of that. You need to get yourself away from that because you are not being faithful to the commitment you made saying, I will repay this at this set interval with this set amount of money. That person earned the right to that property. However, he did it. It was by inheritance. It was by buying it from somebody else or whatever. And now he is trusting in you to get him because maybe he's got other debts to pay. And it goes right up the line all the way. We are never to owe anybody anything that is not a part of a set contract or that is not a part of the regular workings of life because you are harming somebody else. When you take your credit card and you say, I'm not gonna pay this debt because the company says that the government has a policy that I don't have to pay this whole debt, guess what? Then the government is incurring that debt or somebody is incurring that debt and eventually it harms every single person that is supposedly getting a good deal on their credit card instead of paying what two percent now they're paying three or instead of paying on the the back end 15 percent now they're paying 18 percent. that's because people are irresponsible they're taking advantage of the system i was uh talking to the girl at the thai restaurant today while i was waiting for my food and we were talking about something and she mentioned oh it was somebody stole my credit card the the uh you know and so i had to get a new credit card they didn't steal the physical card they got the information off it we're charging on it right Imagine how much labor it takes to have a, 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 a thing that you go up close to somebody and you steal the information off of them because they, they, they're just a couple feet away from you. And then they have to go home and they have to print up a new card because they said it was actually a swiped card. Okay. They go home and they do that. And then they go down, they buy something, and then they really quickly drive to another gas station and they do it again until the card runs out. And I said, if they put that much effort into just working, they'd be millionaires. Instead of stealing from other people, instead of taking a chance of going to jail and harming people everywhere, if they would just go out and do the same amount of labor, they would be millionaires because they're using ingenuity, they're using their time, they're using their gas money, they're using all of this stuff in order to make a couple of dollars before they get caught. Absolutely crazy. Work hard, be diligent, pay your, your, your bills, okay? However, in such a debt payment, we are to be faithful. We are to owe no one anything. If a loan is made, the part that is owed is the part that is due at any given time. True, the entire debt is owed, but it is spread out through a set duration so that it is not truly owed until that duration comes about. We owe taxes when we buy something, not before, except maybe with healthcare, I suppose, right? Okay, therefore we are actually owing taxes at any given time. Again, Paul cannot be saying to acquire no debt at all, or we could never buy anything. Instead, he is telling us that when the debt, the taxes in this instance are due, we pay them at that time. Honor is owed to the office of the president. Charlie Garrett may be president someday, but he is currently not in that position, and so no debt of office is owed to him. However, should his day of inauguration come about, 
he will be owed the debt of that honor. I can assure you that'll never happen. I'm just using an example here. Not because he is inherently worthy of it, but because the office he holds is. And again, Paul cannot be telling us to owe no such debt in the ultimate sense, because we are always, we always owe it if we are in the United States of America. We always owe that debt if we are in the US. So it's something we can never fully pay because we always owe the debt to the office. Does anybody remember what Reagan said about wearing his suit and tie in the office, the Oval Office? He said, this office deserves that dignity. You know, they're shaking their heads. They remember that. He wouldn't go into the Oval Office without his suit and tie on because he said it deserves the dignity of this office. Whereas we had a president a couple years later putting his feet up on the desk for photos with his sleeves rolled up and looking like a buffoon because he wouldn't give the office that he is in the honor that it deserves. It shows you the character of the person completely and wholly. It shows you. All right. When you see President Trump, he's always wearing a red tie and he's always, always looking good. He doesn't walk around like some type of a bum. Right. He understands that the office itself deserves the respect. But Reagan really set that precedent. And I've never forgot that since then. Watch how people act in the Oval Office when they're in there. As much as I don't like him as a president, George Bush W., the son, really gave the office a great deal of respect. He gave it respect. He gave the people in the military respect. He would not play golf once they went to war. He said, I'm not going to do that. I got servicemen overseas. He, he was respectful for the office and for what it held, even though I don't think he was a very good president at all. But there are certain people that have no respect either for other people or for the office or for themselves. You know, I think you know a couple of them I'm thinking of. Anyway, um, let's see here. Um, when ushered into the presence of a crummy president, even he is to be addressed as Mr. President because that's his title. The reason for paying our debts when they are due should be obvious. We bear a title and we bear a distinction which is higher than any other. Any other in the entire world, there is no higher distinction than be called a Christian, okay? We bear the name of Christ Jesus. We err when we, one, fail to render unto Caesar. Two, we fail to pay our loans. Or three, we owe respect, but we instead withhold it. We err against the name of Jesus by doing those things. So we need to be careful. In such instances and others like them, we bring discredit upon the exalted name that we bear. May it never be so. This is why the selection process in Acts chapter 6 is cited for a job even as menial as to serve tables. The, apostle, the apostles were being bogged down because of the daily distribution. So they came together and determined to correct that matter. I'm going to take you there just so you know what I'm talking about. Um, Acts chapter 6, and it says here, let's see here. 6, therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. All right. Honorable people were chosen to handle, matter, handle matters which were demanded of an honorable resolution. After telling us to owe no one anything, Paul now throws in one caveat, which is except to love one another. The debt of love is a debt which can never be fully repaid. Unlike other debts which are paid at the time they become due, the debt of love is an ongoing debt, and it will never, never end. 
It will continue on as long as love exists. And as God is love, which is stated in 1 John 4, verse 8, and because redeemed man will live eternally with God, that's John 3, 16, the debt of love shall never end. It will never cease towards fellow man, nor will it cease towards exalted creator. The office of president will someday disappear. The paying of taxes will cease, and I'm thanking the Lord for that one, but God and the people of God will always be, and the debt of love shall never cease. While in this earthly life, the debt of love is to fulfill a set requirement and a purpose. It is that he who loves one another has fulfilled the law. Thank you. This precept will be explained in and through the next three verses. There is a law which requires obedience, and it is fulfilled in the paying the debt of love. Life application, love is a debt. Be sure to pay it out in a continual stream of unceasing joy. Ah, great stuff. Okay, 13.9. What's that? Hey, it's real hard to do. It's real hard to do. I, I, I'm not trying to say anything here that we are all masters of it or we ever will be masters of it. It's what the Bible tells us to do. Beyond that, we just have to thank God that that uh, 2 Corinthians 5.19, God is not counting men's sins against them. Because if he were, the wages of sin is death. We'd be cut off every 30 seconds or, 10 se or 2 seconds, and then we'd have to be saved again. That's not how it works. We are saved, and he is not imputing our sins to us. All right, so 13.9, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul now makes a similar statement to what Jesus said in Mark chapter 12. Here's what he said. Mark chapter 12, hang on a sec. Luke, Mark 12. And we'll begin in verse 38. Then he said to them, in his teaching, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses. I'm reading the wrong verses. I'm, that's because I'm looking at verse 38, not 28. I see, even with glasses on, I'm not seeing well anymore. 28. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, the first of all commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it. The, this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Okay, so that's Jesus' words. Paul is building on that here in Romans 13, verse 9. Uh, J Jesus, show, oh, he was confronted with that question during that exchange, and he showed that these are the two greatest commandments. In Matthew's account of the same incident, he went on to say, on these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. Israel was given the Ten Commandments. They came from the Lord and were engraved on two tablets of stone. The first five commandments generally deal with man's responsibility to God. The second set are highlighted by the second set of five commandments, by and large, deal with man's responsibility to neighbor. The second set are highlighted by Paul here. Okay, When one commits adultery, they violate the marriage bond set between two people, thus harming one's fellow man. Murder is an act committed against a fellow human being and a willful intent with willful intent. Accidental killing is 
of is another of another is considered differently under the law of Moses. That's in Deuteronomy 19, 4 through, 4 through 7, which we're not going to read. Further, the execution of criminals for capital offenses is not considered murder. murder. Thank you. Rather, it is considered uh, against God's wishes to let a capital crime go unpunished. But the intentional taking of another life, murder, is an utter failure to lovingly consider one's fellow man. The reason why I stress that was I was hoping somebody was going to answer that, which I did. And beyond that, today in Mail Online, it says that the Pope has come and he has said that all capital punishment is wrong. <laughs> all of it. So that'll make the prophecy update this week. You can sleep through that two seconds. Oh, absolutely. It shows his level of Bible knowledge because it is very clear in scripture. It predates the law of Moses. It is in the law of Moses. It is never voided. Even afterward, we are to execute capital criminals. That is God's standard. If somebody has violated that if you shed man's blood, by man shall your blood be shed. That was prior to the law of Moses. It is an eternal standard of God. And the reason why is because when you attack a person who bears God's image, you are attacking God's image bearer. You are making an assault against God in doing that. Okay, everybody got that? And so when you do that, it is life for life. That doesn't change in the New Testament. It doesn't change with Jesus going to the cross. It is, you know what? There was, I, I wish I could find it. It was Dr. Kennedy who said it in a sermon and I've forgotten the name of the person or I could very easily find it, but I've tried to put in different keywords and I've never been able to find it. But during the uh, colonial days, there was a guy that was gonna be hung the next day. Uh, the, the judge sentenced him to death. And before he sentenced him to death, before he actually released him from the courtroom, he gave him the gospel. And he says, I hope you'll think on this tonight because tomorrow you are going to meet your creator. And I thought, what a wonderful way to do it. You give the gospel to somebody that really needs it. That's where you, you know, the fact is though that every person that doesn't know Christ really needs it because they're already under the death sentence and they may die tomorrow anyway. So everybody should get the gospel. But I thought that guy knows he's going to die tomorrow. And so at least this judge was good enough to give him the gospel in the process because uh, that's not always offered to people. But yeah, I, that'll make the prophecy update, so sleep through that two minutes of the uh, update. But yes, I, I was appalled when I read that. Okay, um, uh, it's taking, uh, it's considered against God's wishes to let a capital crime go unpunished. Next, he cites the law against stealing. What a person has worked for or earned in whatever legal way is that person's private property. To willfully take what belongs to another fails to regard that person's right to his possessions. In so doing, it is showing a disregard for the life and efforts of the person who is being stolen from. This concept can, can and should be elevated to the wrongful taking of assets from citizens by a government, including unfair taxation. By levying taxes in an arbitrary manner, thus favoring some over others, which is exactly where we are in this world today, it demonstrates an unloving attitude towards all citizens. By taking from producers, it demonstrates a disregard for their efforts. By handing out welfare to those who can work for themselves, it demonstrates a disregard for their value as productive members of society. It is harmful and it is unloving. And that's why the liberal agenda is completely against the what God has ordained, completely. 
People don't seem to understand that. But when you give money to somebody and say, you don't have to work when he should be working, you are actually harming that individual. You're not helping him at all. And if he can work, he should work. And if he doesn't have a job to pay his bills, then you give him that and you say, in exchange for this, because this is now your pay, we are going to take you in a bus and you're going to go out and pick up garbage on the, the highway or something. You can have them do something productive for the money that they are receiving. But our government doesn't do that. They expect nothing from it. And it is harming the people that are producing and it's harming the people that are receiving those benefits. Everybody is harmed by unfair taxes and by unfair distribution of wealth. Everybody. Nobody is innocent in that one or not innocent. What's the word? Nobody goes unscathed or unharmed in that particular uh, uh, situation. Scenario. Scenario. Thank you. Bearing false witness is unloving in that it is injurious to the innocent. When someone is wrongfully testified against, their rights as individuals are stripped and they become accountable for crimes that they have not committed. Okay, um, A good example of this from the Old Testament concerns Naboth's vineyard back in uh, 1 Kings 21. Great, great story. False testimony against him led to his death and his family inheritance was being stolen away by King Ahab, right? Can happen to anybody here for any sort of reason. We've got all kinds of things that we can be falsely accused of in this society, and it can be very harmful to individuals, even for the rest of their life or even, even to the taking of their life. Jezebel's scheme. Jezebel's scheme, absolutely. Oh, she was a wicked one, that one. She was, you know, she's like the epitome of wickedness. And when Jesus speaks of the the bad woman in Revelation, he uses the term Jezebel. So, yeah, one wicked woman there. Coveting harms one's fellow man, coveting, because it inevitably leads to a violation of some other commandment. Coveting always violates another commandment. It doesn't just violate the coveting. It always violates another one. Okay. Coveting the wife of another will lead to adultery. Thank you. Coveting someone's personal property will lead to theft. Thank you. Coveting one's position or authority will lead to false testimony against them in order to usurp them. Further, coveting in particular will inevitably violate some of the first set of commandments, and thus it shows a lack of love not only for others, but for God as well. When you covet, you are breaking at least one other commandment always, always, or you are going to. You may not immediately, but you are going to, but you are violating the, uh, the commandment of loving your God with all your heart, because if you're coveting something that somebody has, right? then you're not loving God with all your heart because he has given you your station in life. If you like what that person has, it doesn't mean you're coveting. You say, I'm going to go earn what that person has because I really like it. But to covet it means something other than liking it and being willing to earn it. It is a desire of the heart saying, I want that and I will get it in any way I can. There's a little bit of a difference here. You can enjoy things. You can say, I want that. I really, really would like to have that surfboard. But guess what? You go out and you earn it, right? And then you get your surfboard and go surfing. And mom remembers when I was young, she wouldn't give me money for a surfboard. She says, you're going to earn it. She said, she was so happy the day that I paid that thing off. She said, the smile on your face was huge. And then I rode it for a while. And one time I went straight down and the board came straight up. And I've got a, a gash in my back right here to this day where it was. And so sometimes you can really work hard for something and it doesn't really work out too well for you. But it's a great board anyway. I, I loved writing it. But, you know, there's always there's always a little bitterness with every good thing, it seems. I don't know. Whatever. Anyway. The the, yeah, it's the way of the world. Yeah. Okay, so coveting, don't covet. Okay. And so Paul gives the remedy to us in order to keep from violating these and any other commandments, as he says, that may apply. 
You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you love yourself, are you going to murder yourself? No. If you love yourself, are you going to steal from yourself? No. It'd be stupid, right? If you love yourself or, yeah, are you going to covet yourself? Well, some people might anyway. So no one would appreciate their own wife committing adultery against them. The thought of being murdered isn't nearly as pleasing to a murderer as killing others. Where theft of others may seem trivial, the same person will feel completely violated when their property is stolen. A person who is born false witness may shrug off the sentence of the one they bore witness against until they are in the same cell with them, having been falsely testified against by another. And no coveter would sleep well knowing that someone else was continuously coveting what they possessed. I mean, if you knew that somebody was coveting what you had, you wouldn't sleep well. Right? Because you know they're going to come eventually and they're going to break into your house and they're going to steal it. When you were coveting and you thought, oh, that's not too bad. It is. The whole thing is just bad. In the end, when the shoe is on the other foot, except on me, that's not a problem. But when it's on the other foot, none of these crimes seems pleasant. By loving others as one loves themselves, we take away such thoughts and replace them with a right attitude toward our fellow man little life application here. When you are contemplating harming another person in some way, consider how it would be if you were so harmed. In today's wicked world, we can be small beacons of light if we simply hold fast to the words of the Bible and the faith that we profess. I know it's tough. I, I'm reading these things because I type these things. And even when I was typing them, at times I thought, boy, I'm being hypocritical typing this. It's just the way of the world. We can't, we're not perfect but we are to strive for these things. All right, verse 13, 10. Verse 13, 10, let me read that. Love, oh, oh, I said it already. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. The thoughts of loving another and harming another are contradictory. Where there is love, there will be no harm. In the previous verse, Paul spoke of the commandments mentioned in the second half of the Ten Commandments. These are directed in general towards other humans, now collectively called a neighbor. Each of these commandments finds its fulfillment in love. As stated, those written commandments he finished with, and any other commandment which he said, this opens up the statement to any prescriptive directive in Scripture. Any. We know this because the Greek includes no definite article before the word law. Love, then, is the fulfillment of all all divine law. As the People's New Testament says, God requires nothing which is not comprehended in this world. God is not going to impose something on us that we cannot comprehend in this world. It's not going to happen. All right. If he requires something, it's something that we can attain to. It is possible. All right. As God is love, any law which stems from God will be revealed in love. Think it through, look at any one of his laws, and you will see that's true. One could argue against this by going back to the Old Testament and citing one of the numerous laws which calls for the stoning of someone, a homosexual, for example. That's in Leviticus 20, verse 13. The argument could be that's an unloving mandate of God. As a matter of fact, which it, it will probably make the prophecy update uh, uh, next week. I may throw it in there this week, but a person at Harvard University, a Jewish guy, by the way, a scholar of the Bible, has come out and he has said that the book of Leviticus is actually a rewrite where it was homosexuality was originally allowed. Okay, this is a Harvard, a Harvard scholar, right? He actually said that 
Leviticus has got errors and it was originally okay and that has been glossed over since then it is now uh, uh, what do you got? It's a long article. If you uh, wait, I, I will probably talk about it this week or next. If I don't, big deal. But um, anyway, I emailed him right to his Harvard email address. I found him online and I found his uh, Harvard email address and I sent him an email. So if I give the update, the uh, thing in the update, I will also read the email which I sent to him. He is incorrect and he knows it now. He knew it all along, but now he certainly knows it. Anyway, um, let's see here. Um, uh, yeah, stoning homosexuals for Leviticus 2013. The argument could be that this is an unloving mandate of God. Incorrect. One, the act violates what is determined good by God from the beginning of creation. A perversion of something good cannot be called good. Everybody see that? says that a man is to have a woman. Doesn't say anything about a man having a man. Therefore, it is perverting something good. It cannot be good, too. For the soundness of his covenant people at large, God has forbidden acts contrary to what he has ordained in creation to keep them healthy, holy, and free from sin. Such laws are actually loving directives by God for the general good of his people. And three, the law was given that sin might become exceedingly sinful. That's found in Romans 7 verse 13. And therefore it acts as a tutor to lead us to Christ. That's Galatians 3 verse 24. By seeing our need for freedom from this sin and then calling on Jesus for forgiveness of that sin, the greatest demonstration of all love is witnessed. Everybody see the logic? If it leads us to Christ, it doesn't matter what they claim about the stoning of a person in the Old Testament. If it leads people to Christ, then it was ultimately the greatest of good. The giving of God's own son for the sinful people of the world. It was good, it is good, and it will remain good always. It doesn't matter what people think about what's going on in the world today from their perspective. The only thing that matters is what God's <laughs> word says in context, okay? What we arrogantly or ignorantly claim as unloving in God is, in fact, directed towards the highest demonstration of love. Nothing God demands or determines can be unloving. Nothing. By our own perverse choices, we bring wrath upon ourselves because we are acting in the nature, in a manner which is contrary to what the all-loving Creator has determined for us. Every single law of God is good, and he determined it for a reason, because he is love. Every single one of them. When you read them and you think, what does this have to do? And most of them that seem so obscure and dubious, remember, they all pointed to Jesus. In one way or another, they were pointing to Jesus. Every single thing in the book of Leviticus. I missed that book. I got to tell you, we're starting Numbers 1, 1 through 18, and it's going to be a fun book. But I miss Leviticus. I mean, I literally, I just read it in the past couple days. It was my reading. I started Numbers yesterday, and I'm, you know, be done with Numbers in another couple days. But I literally miss the book of Leviticus. I, every time I think about it, every time I go through it, I think, oh, the richness in here, the, the amount of wealth that was in here. And that was part of what I said. I didn't get belligerent with this guy at all in my email to him about Leviticus. But I did send him my playlist and I said, if you want to know what any of these passages is pointing to, watch this and you're going to find out because you are not schooled properly. I don't remember the exact words I used, but he knows. I mean, there's no doubt. He probably won't even read the email because he's, you know, whatever. But I kept thinking, wouldn't it be nice if he would read that and just click on the sermon and think, oh, wasn't that interesting? And then hear about Jesus and come to the Lord. You know, I hope 
That's why I wasn't belligerent, because if you're belligerent to somebody in an email, you've lost, it's done, all right? I was straightforward, but I wasn't belligerent. So there you go, there's a difference. Okay, so uh, where was I? Um, uh, demonstration of love. Nothing God demands or determines can be unloving. By our own perverse choices, we bring wrath upon ourselves because we are acting in a nature contrary to what the all-loving creator has determined for us. It is our actions, not God's requirements, which are unloving. He is the creator. We are the created. You want to know how to refute somebody about, they, you know, I, you, I'm always getting emails from people about that issue. You know, what do I tell people about being gay? And what do I, you know, listen, God is God. We are man. That's all there is to it. It doesn't matter what we think. It doesn't matter what we feel. It doesn't matter who we love. It doesn't matter at all. It makes no difference at all. God is God. He has spoken. That is what matters. Okay? In context, always. Because the law of Moses is set aside in Christ. But people need to understand that because they are going to be judged by that law because they haven't come to Christ. So you have to go in context, but you have to say there is a standard which God expects. This is that standard. Here's the grace and the mercy that he provides. You choose. You choose. All right. Life application. Shall we charge the Almighty with wrongdoing? May it never be so. God requires nothing of us which is not understood and obtainable in the concept of love. However, we must view all things from his perspective, not our own. Always, always from God's perspective. When we insert ourselves into the equation, it will be wrong. We will err. What does it say about the heart in the book of Jeremiah? The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Desperately wicked. What's that? I thought it was deceitful above all. It is deceitful above all things and then desperately wicked. It, it is absolutely not to be trusted ever. Never trust your heart. Okay. It is deceitful above all things. Uh, 1311, 1311, let's see here, and do this, knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than we first believed. Wow, he wrote that 2,000 years ago. Well, it's true. I mean, if he believed 30 years earlier, it's 30 years on. If he believed 10 minutes earlier, it's 10 minutes on. It doesn't matter when you believe, your salvation is nearer than when you first believed. Okay, and do this refers to the thoughts of the previous verses culminating in the commandment to love one another. It is our obligation and it is all the more necessary because of knowing the time. That's what Paul says, knowing the time. He states this and he takes it as an axiom that believers should in fact be aware of the time in which we live. And what is that time? We don't know. We have no idea, right? It is the indeterminate span known as the church age. We have no idea. What does Paul say about salvation? Behold, now. now is the time of your salvation. Now is the time of God's favor. Today is the day of salvation. Thank you. That's what he says, right? Thank you. Thank you very much. I was looking at Burke and Cy once again bailed you out. It's either so, first or second. Yeah, I know. Six. Yeah, I, I, I try my best to remember the verse numbers and I never can, but I remember what it says. Is it? Yeah. I mean, today is the day of salvation. And I always, when I almost always end a gospel presentation with somebody when I'm talking to them about Jesus. Doesn't matter how you talk to them, you have to watch their body, have to see how they're responding, and then you adapt to whatever you see. But I always bring them back to today is a day of salvation. 
Why? And I, this is the example I give every single time because everybody understands this example. If I used the Indianapolis in uh, uh, World War II, most people wouldn't get it. But everybody, even young children, know about 9-11. If you say that there was two buildings and those people went into that building and they went up to the top floor, not one of them, not one of those people in that building thought, today I'm going to die, right? Nobody. But they went in there, they pushed that button, they went up the elevator, they went to work, they went up to view something, they went to visit a friend, whatever. And the next thing you know, they're, they're deciding, I'm going to jump out of this building instead of burn to death. Can you imagine that? Jumping from a hundred and some floors, saying, it's better to do this than to do that. Nobody. Those airplanes, those people were going into that plane, that building, they were dead before they even heard the impact. None of them got on that airplane and said, gee, today I'm going to die. Today is the day of salvation. That means today. There may not be tomorrow. And if you give somebody the gospel and you don't tell them the urgency of that particular precept, you may be sinning against them. Absolutely. So make sure they understand today is the day of salvation. Okay. So uh, let's see here. Um, where was I? Um, oh, yeah. Knowing the time. What time? It's an indeterminate time. The dispensation began at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. I know some people disagree with that. There is a teaching that says that um, uh, the church age did not begin with Christ's resurrection and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Okay. I had a debate with somebody on this through an email a while ago. And finally, I said, you know, let's talk about something else. I, I just didn't want to go through it anymore. Back and forth, back and forth. But they say that the dispensation began with Paul's conversion. Okay. I think Les Feldick actually teaches this. And I love the guy. I'm just not going to argue with him over it. But we know that's not correct. And I'm going to tell you how you know. As a matter of fact, here was the point. You were wrong telling people you need to be baptized because that is something that does not pertain to the church. And I've had people tell me this, right? We don't need to be baptized. Okay? That is not a part of the church age. And they say, Paul started the church age and Paul never teaches to be baptized. He says, I did baptize people, right? Blah, blah, blah. He says, but he never teaches it. He simply says that he did it. Okay? Who is it that gave the instruction for baptism? Jesus. Jesus. Okay, now they say he was speaking to the Jewish people, and that will resume again when the church age is over. Okay. How do we know that that is wrong? Can anybody logically think, how do we know that's wrong? There are two ordinances that Jesus gave us. What are they? The Lord's Supper and believers, and baptism. Ba believers baptism. Okay. How do we know that not being baptized, as they say, is incorrect. Because this is a teaching that people teach. How do we know that that's incorrect? No, 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 no. Because that, 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 was, that was before Paul. I just gave you two examples and you, you repeated them to me. Now think it through. How do we know that that is not correct? Jesus modeled it and he told us that this would be the right Once again, church age begins with Paul. I'm going to ask this again. What are the two ordinances that Jesus gave us? You already said it. Go ahead. Say it again. That one first and then that one. Yeah. Okay. There we go. So I've, I've, I've given you the two. So I'm going to ask again. How do we know that baptism, I'm going to bring the right finger down. How do we know that baptism is required? Because there's another one that we are doing, aren't we? And that is in Paul's letters. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 
These are the instructions that Paul gave us for the Lord's Supper. Well, guess what? Jesus' instruction for the Lord's Supper was before he was crucified. And they come from, from Luke. Paul says, I received this from the Lord, right? But he uses the words of Luke in the Lord's Supper. The words of Luke come before his crucifixion. Everybody see that? And therefore, when Jesus rose and he gave two ordinances, one of them was before his crucifixion, depending on his crucifixion, both of them must be obligatory because Christ demanded it. And because one of them, we are observing from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Does everybody see the logic? So if somebody comes to you and they say, the church age began with Paul, not in Acts chapter 2, you can tell them that is incorrect. Because he gave two ordinances, Paul explains one of them specifically in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, but the other one came from Jesus before that one. And he cites it. He cites it from Jesus' mouth. The Lord said this to me. Well, guess what? It is exactly what Paul says from Luke, okay, concerning the Lord's Supper. So when somebody tells you that, it is incorrect. We are to baptize, and it's not because we need to be. Their logic then goes, you are making that a work for salvation. No, you're already saved. Nobody, I don't know anybody but the Church of Christ, which is incorrect, that says you need to be baptized in order to be saved. Okay, that's taking Acts chapter 2 out of context completely. Okay, we went through that on baptism. Go back and watch the baptism, the Romans 6 uh, uh, talk on baptism. But you do not need to be baptized in order to be saved. You need to be baptized in order to be obedient. 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 Because we take the Lord's Supper in order to be obedient. Because that's what the Lord said. It has nothing to do with salvation. You can't say, oh, you're making that a work, and therefore you're saying you have to be baptized in order to be saved, and then not say that about the Lord's Supper. Does anybody ever say that if you don't take the Lord's Supper, you won't be saved? No, of course not. Some churches do it once a year. Some of them don't do it at all. But he told us to do it. And he also told us to be baptized. Don't listen to people that come up with those crazy things because it is incorrect. And the problem is people hear that and then they just run with it and they go on for the rest of their lives teaching incorrect doctrine. The doctrine of baptism has nothing to do with salvation. It has to do with being obedient. If you have not been baptized, you are not obedient to the Lord who told you to be baptized. And I'm talking about after salvation. I'm not talking about sprinkling at birth, okay? He said, be baptized. Well, what does that mean? It means wait until you call on me. And then when you do, you make a picture of what I've done. You are buried with Christ in his death. You are raised by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is a public demonstration of the personal change that has been effected in you. Just as that is, that's a public demonstration that you are celebrating his death until he comes again. That's what you're doing. It has nothing to do with salvation, neither does baptism. The two are inseparable because they came from the Lord in one sentence. Paul defines one of them explicitly. He speaks of the other several times. Okay, you need to be baptized. Not for salvation, but for obedience. Okay, I know I beat that to death, but that is something that people need to understand. It is important that we get our doctrine straight that we don't listen to people just because they say something does not, oh, that sounds logical. Well, it's not logical. If you think it through, it is illogical. And that's the opposite of logical. Illogical and logical are opposites, okay? Let's go on. Uh, let's see here. Uh, where was I? Paul says it is, oh, yeah, this dispensation, the church age, began at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in Acts 2, and it will end suddenly and without prior notice at some point in the future. 
Christ will return at the rapture for his people in the twinkling of an eye. And guess what? He's going to come for the Jews that were saved. He's going to come for the Samaritans that were saved. And he's going to come for the Gentiles that were saved all at the same time. There's not a distinction that went from Acts chapter uh, 1 through 12 and then 13 through 28, other than to show the transition between the Jew-led church to the Gentile-led church. Why? We went through this in Acts because the Jews are under punishment. What's that? Right. They're under punishment for 2,000 years for having rejected the Lord. And the Lord said, we're going to do something during this time of punishment. We're not going to waste it. We're going to get the maximum benefit out of it. I'm going to have a church when we're done with these 2,000 years. And it's coming soon to a rapture near you. I can't wait personally. Okay? Because we don't know when this will happen, nor will we have time to prepare for it when it comes, Paul says that now, now it is high time to awake out of our sleep. Being awake implies being alert and ready. I wasn't trying to put you on the spot. I was trying to get everybody here to think through their two ordinances. And that's why I asked, what are the two? You can't separate the two. And that's why I held up one finger. So I wasn't picking on any of you. I kind of feel bad when you, maybe you think I am and I'm not. I just, I'm trying to get you to think through the issue because if you think it through, you will never forget it. If I teach it to you, how many things have we gone through today? I'll bet you 452, 453. You're going to remember four of them, right? Maybe four. So if I get you to respond and think through one of them, you will never forget it, okay? That's why I do that, okay? If it's just me talking, it's like a sermon. You don't really get anything. But when you guys are asking questions and we got things going back and forth, you remember more, okay? So interrupt me. Just wave a hand and say, but that's no problem at all. Sometimes I get thrown off for a second. We'll get over it. Um, okay, so we're waiting. Being asleep implies not being ready. Right? We're supposed to be ready, but being asleep implies not being ready. Taking this and trying to back it to the, ver uh, take, taking this and tying it back to the previous verses, Paul is telling us to always and at all times have a loving attitude. How difficult that can be. Right? I'm telling you, that, that, it just is. I mean, Tom and I are at a mission work every single week, and I've seen him not have a loving attitude, and he's certainly seen me not have one. You know, it's, it's just tough. You know, you're stressed, you're working hard, you go out and you try to help people and they're not willing to help themselves. Or when you do help them, they turn around like a rattlesnake and bite you after two, three years of helping them. It hurts. I'm going to tell you what, it literally hurts. You preach in a church and somebody hears one little thing that they don't like and they get snippy and they leave and you never see them again. That bothers you. I'm going to tell you what, it really bothers you because you care about the people you're preaching to. You care that they're going to get good doctrine. All right. And then when somebody just gets upset over something and just marches out or just never calls and tells why they're upset, it hurts you. I, I, I don't know a pastor that could possibly not be hurt by losing a congregant over something. Right. I just if they do, then they're probably in the wrong position because you're supposed to care about the people that you're preaching to, especially after two or three weeks or three years or four years. And then somebody just stops coming and you wonder, what have I done? They don't tell you they don't, nothing. You know, what have I done? It's just, there you go. Anyway, um, so uh, yeah, it's difficult. The, Im the imminence of the return of Christ should direct our every thought and action. It should. And you know, when I'm out working and I'm picking stuff up and I'm talking to the Lord, I'm thinking that, you know, he might come right now. I, you know, and sometimes I'm just having a bad day and I think, oh, I hope he comes right now. I mean, it's just, it's just everything we do should be gauged on that. I, I, I remember talking to somebody one time about, the Lord coming, and I said, the Lord might be coming soon. Yeah, he just might be coming really soon. He says, I don't want him to come. I've got, 
I'm retiring and I've got a vacation plan. I thought, that's the stupidest thing on the planet. I got a vacation plan. My daughter's getting married. You know, my, my, my puppy's going to have puppies. I, who cares? To see Jesus, he is the source of every good thing that we could ever experience. Every good thing that we could possibly wish for, desire, hope for, he created it. And therefore, he's way better than those things. Right. You can't on your plans anyway. No, your plan. Yeah, James tells us that. As a matter of fact, it's sinful to do that. You're supposed to say, if yeah, the Lord wills. Lord will. Absolutely. It's sinful to count on your plans because you don't know. Today is a day of salvation. You might go up in an elevator and not come down or come down really quickly, you know? <laughs> oh, boy. I, I just don't understand how people cannot be ready for the coming of the Lord in their heart. I mean, we're never going to be exactly ready. Not one of us. But Bob... Hey, man, he had a, another stroke this yeah. past week. He could have died. He's got to be ready for the coming of the Lord. Any one of us could keel over and have a stroke right now. Right? I, it would just be ready. Just because it's not the rapture doesn't mean that you're not going to go be with the Lord. Okay? I was going to make a comment about somebody's driving, but I won't. Anyway, let's see here. Um, uh, yeah, it should be our every thought and action. Who would be, who would want to be found living in disobedience to the Lord's directive at his coming? I, I, not me. If we look at it from this perspective, then we should endeavor to always live in a manner worthy of our high calling. Though it's been 2,000 years and many will dismiss the Christian religion simply because things have continued unchanged for so long, to the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. I said it last week, that's Psalm 90, verse 4, the oldest psalm in the Bible. Moses wrote that, and then Peter brings it up again in 2 Peter 3, verse 8. A day to the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. It, time doesn't matter to him, okay? To us, it does, but to him, it doesn't. There is no consideration from his eternal perspective. He has a plan, and that plan is being worked out in a meticulous manner. When it is complete, there will be no delay. Therefore, as we live within this stream of time, we should be ever expectant of his return, as Paul says, for our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Didn't sound so good at first, right? You're thinking, what's he talking about? That was 2,000 years ago. Well, it sounds right now, doesn't it? Because he had no idea. The people in the 1100s had no idea. The people in the 1700s had no idea. The people right now have no idea. We have no idea. It's going to happen when it happens. And as I said, good example. I know I gave it a couple weeks ago. I'll give it again because this is what God is doing. God is building. He's building his church, which is he calls it a house, right? He's building a house. People not made of stones, but of us. Okay. When a architect builds a house, he knows down to the penny what it's going to cost. He knows how much concrete based on a certain day. We have this much concrete, we need this much copper wire, we need this many man hours for this, we need this many people to cut wood, and we know how many uh, uh, four by eight sheets are going to be on the roof and how many tiles go over that. He knows all of it. He's got, that's, what, that's his job, is to plan on what an expense is going to be for the building of that house. He knows usually within, what, $1,000 you'd say today? Probably within $1,000, maybe even less if he's really good. Guess what? God is way, way better than that architect. He knows exactly to the very person, the very last soul that's going to be saved, what that house is going to be like, when it is going to be ready, and when it's ready, that is it. It is going to be done. There's not going to be any need for any, oh, I forgot to put in the light switch cover or anything like that. It is done. God has a plan, 
and it's going to come about and it's going to be marvelous. So we should be ready all the time. Always just be ready. Okay. Every believer since that first day of the church age has been added as a living stone to that temple, which he is building. When the final stone calls out in belief, there will be no need for more stones. That'll be the last one. No architect continues to order materials for a building, which is enough for its completion, right? It's like, what, what did Moses say? Or the people say to Moses when, uh, or Moses said to the people, they're bringing in all the stuff to build the tabernacle, right? Quit giving. Quit giving. We have enough. He didn't say, keep bringing it, keep bringing it. We'll just pile it up over here. He didn't do that. He said, stop. And that was by a human edifice for God, but it was by a human edifice. We have enough. We don't need any more. God isn't even going to need to say that. He's just going to say, it's done. It's finished. Out of here. The rapture is going to happen, and it's going to be that quick. The last person to call on Jesus, it's going to be over that quickly. All right? So, um, and so each person who believes brings us nearer than when every other believer first called out in faith. faith. Every single believer is once one believer closer. Verse 13, 12, oh, life application. Therefore, there, there will be a moment when the building is complete. When that time comes, Christ will return for his church. Let us not be found filled with bitterness and hatred. Instead, we need to live out our life in love, thus fulfilling the law we have been given. Christ could come at any moment. Let us remain awake and alert. Okay. All right, verse 13, 12. I think that'll be our last verse. We got eight more minutes or so. Um, the night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Okay, let's see here. What do we have to say about that? Based on his preceding comment concerning our need to awake out of sleep, Paul uses a set of metaphors, night and day, to explain that. He says the night is far spent. The literal night equates to the darkness of the world and its spiritual corruption, a world lacking order in which, in which is chaos. This is seen, for example, when Jesus confronted was confronted at night at Gethsemane. Let me take you to Luke chapter 22 and verse 53, which says, where are we? Um, when I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness, right? So let's see here. Where was that? I just, oh, I'm down at the bottom of the page. Okay. This time of spiritual darkness is still in the world. Victory is found in Jesus, but it is not yet fully realized. That will only occur when he returns. For now, an indeterminate length of time, the day is at hand. The rapture of the church and what comes after that has been imminent from the very starting of the church age. There is no time that a believer could rightly say the Lord won't come back today. There's no time. Therefore, that day is always at hand. And because it is, Paul gives us a stern admonition. He says, therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Therefore, ask us to consider what has been said and then to act on it. Therefore, consider it and act on it. Okay. Let us cast off the works of darkness, implores us to live in spiritual light and in holiness. Time and again, the Bible refers to the light in this way. John speaks of the light contrasting the darkness in the first chapter of his gospel. Here's what it says. In the first verse of the Bible, it speaks of, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and 
the word was God, and then you get down to verses 4 and 5, and it says, in him, meaning Jesus, was life, and the life was the light. Yes, the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Some versions say overcome it. Okay, so it just depends on how the translators choose what they're doing with the translation. But one way or another, the light is actively spoken of in this way several times in the Bible. In order to, as Paul says, cast off darkness, one must be clothed with light. Darkness cannot overcome itself. Only when found, only when found clothed in light will darkness flee away. This is why Paul next says to put on the armor of light. In order to do this, one must move from the devil to Christ and from the misdeed of fallen Adam to the triumph of Jesus. He is our armor from the darkness, which is found in the fallen world and the one who can protect us from being cast into outer darkness when our days are complete. Once one is put on Christ, they need to continue in Christ actively through prayer, studying his word, fellowshipping with others, and so on. And by doing this, we won't be unfruitful, nor will we be, be pulled back into the spiritually corrupt world around us. No, you're not going to lose your salvation. I'll defend that to the last, but you can be pulled back into the world. You can be pulled back out of that light, and that's not a happy place to be. Christ is going to come, and what are we going to be doing? Sitting in the bar cussing and drinking all night? Yeah, we can. We can do that, but that's not what we would want to be doing when the Lord comes. Right? We want to do something healthy and wholesome and whatever. Okay, life application. Yeah, we're going to have to finish with this one. The Bible uses many metaphors to help us understand spiritual truths. As you read the Bible, take time to think through these things. Elements, type of animals, types of grain and other foods, milk and honey, for example, light and darkness and so on. God uses things that we understand in the natural world to show us spiritual truths. Every time we come to a new thing like that in the Bible during our sermons, we always try to evaluate. What is this picturing? What is that stone picturing? What is that color picturing? If you want to know the colors of the tabernacle and how they point to Christ, and indeed they do point to Christ, go back and watch those sermons. Every single color has a reason why he chose that color. Everything he does has a reason. There's nothing in the Bible that is superfluous. Listen, here's what I tell people about the Word of God. God had about 1,600 years to write this book. He used about 40 people to write it, okay? There are a limited number of words in this book. There are a limited number of chapters. There's a limited number of books in the book, right? Every single thing has to have purpose, everything in here, because it's limited. It's small enough where it can fit in our hand, and yet it, it defines the very nature of God. It explains to us the things of eternity. It speaks to us of things that will bring us out of darkness and into light. Everything that is in here must have a purpose. And that's what we do when we do these sermons. I, I know that some people find it tedious, and they find it boring, and they want to go to a church and be told about how to live their life for the next seven days. If you know this, you're going to know how to live your life for the next 70 years. That's what's important, is to understand the intricacy of what God has done in this word. That is the most important thing we could ever do. It is a treasure. It, I, I don't understand how people cannot revere this word. I had a guy email me a couple days ago. I think it was two days ago. And he said, I'm a new Christian. I think he said four months. He's already read the entire New Testament. I said, you know what? I know Christians have been Christians their whole life and they've never read the, the New Testament. I don't know if I said it exactly like that, but I said you've read a lot more than a lot of Christians have ever read. 
this guy is on fire for the Lord, and he's, he's on fire because of the word. Man, you talk about somebody that, I said, every time you open this book, either to him or somebody else in another email, you're going to be rewarded for it. The Lord will reward you for the time you spend in this book. He's not going to give you a reward for watching TV. He's not going to give you a reward for playing sports. You know, if you're an athlete and you make a million dollars a year, so what? You're not going to get one reward for dribbling a ball back to and forth on a, a, no one. But you pick up this word and you read this and you say, I'm going to do this to honor God in the morning. I'm going to do it through the day and at night. You're going to get rewarded for it. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this precious word that you have given us. It is the most wonderful gift. I mean, of all the things that we could give one another, that we could cherish in our life, that we could carry with us and to desire and yearn for all of our life, uh, all the years of our lives, and to even have secreted away with us in our coffin, it would be this word. It's eternal, it stands forever, and it is beautiful. Thank you for this precious word, Lord. And thank you for the people that are willing to pursue it, to understand it, to rely on it, to trust it. And in so trusting in it, they are trusting in you because your word is a reflection of who you are. Thank you for this precious word. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We exalt you. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Back this baby up here. What we got here? Break. <laughs>